everyone. Uh, so my name is Ebony West and I'm the Programs and Engagement Associate with Triangle Community Foundation. And joining me today is my lovely colleague, Laurel Schulman, who is the Donor Engagement Officer at the Foundation. Uh, first off, I want to extend a quick thank you for participating with us in this exciting new experiment, What Matters the Podcast. This is episode three of our podcast, and today we'll be talking about individuals and families who did not receive aid from the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, also known as the CARES Act. Uh, we have a mix of wonderful perspectives here that will give us a well-rounded understanding of who was left out and how nonprofits and funders are filling this gap by supporting these community members. And so with that said, we're excited to get things kicked off, and so I will throw things over to Laurel to introduce our panelists. As Ebony said, um, we have a lovely panel today. Joining us, we have Melinda Wiggins, the Executive Director of Student Action with Farm Workers. She's also a board member at Triangle Community Foundation. We have Michelle Bermio Bentonport, Development Manager of El Pueblo. We have Bob Healy and Kay Edgar. Bob is a semi-retired professor of environmental policy at Duke. Kay is a retired CPA and financial planner. Both of them are fund holders at the foundation. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much, Laurel. Uh, Something uh, you know, we and many of our nonprofit partners realized once the CARES Act funding was made available was that some of our community members would not be able to access, um, you know, the economic impact payments. And so, for you know, those at home, these were the payments that were given um, or sent to you know individuals at home. Um, you know, for instance, some folks got twelve hundred, really depending on family size. And so, uh, you know, I will throw things over to you, Michelle, first. Uh, can you shed a little light on what families were ineligible to receive federal aid and why? Yeah, so um, basically undocumented families were completely left out um, because if you don't have a social security number, they basically said you don't qualify for aid. So not only was it undocumented families, but also mixed status families, which happens a lot, right? Like the adults may be undocumented, but the children are not or one of the children may have DACA. And so these folks were really just thrown under the bus, um, completely not even thought about. Um, and they really were, you know, they're the most vulnerable population because they're the ones that really make up most of the population of essential workers. Yeah, that's super important insight. Um, and I, I also want to make sure, um, Melinda, I know you're also serving a really important population as well. So can you, can you provide any additional insight on folks that, you know, your organization serves that were left out mm -hmm. as well? Yeah, I think I would like to add that their undocumented uh, individuals and workers were left out of other pieces mm -hmm. of uh, the support, not just the stimulus check, right? There have been a lot of efforts to help folks who went on unemployment, emergency paid sick leave, um, Medicaid, and undocumented individuals, unfortunately, um, are not eligible for unemployment insurance, were not eligible for the pandemic unemployment program. And then the emergency paid sick leave is a little complicated because undocumented folks are eligible for that, but employers have to have, um, there's a 500 employee kind of number. And so for big companies, they are not required to pay the paid sick leave. So if a big food processing company, for instance, because we work with food processing workers and field workers, if a big food processing worker has more than that number of employees, they are not required to pay um, their employees paid sick leave if they're sick from quarantine. And we're hearing on the ground that many workers in those plants who've been uh, who've gotten sick and had to take leave are not getting paid sick leave. So it's more than the stimulus, right? There's these other safety net 
rights that we have in place that both undocumented workers and some essential workers are left out of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. I'm really glad you pointed that out, Melinda, about just the real depths of folks that were left out um, in some of the very direct ways and also in some of the more nuanced ways as well. Um, so thank you both, Michelle and Melinda, for sharing those insights. Um, I guess kind of moving on too, you know, I, I really want to make sure we hear about your organizations and your work. So um, can you, can you, you know, let us know a little bit about the ways um, that the communities that you serve have been impacted by COVID-19 um, and how your organizations have been supporting these individuals and families. And uh, since Michelle started us off, Melinda, you wanna start this time? Sure. Um, I work with Student Action with Farm Workers and we focus on our work on both field workers and food processing workers. And as you know, there's been more news about these workers than in my 25 year history with SAF during the last couple months, which months, which has been great, right? People are talking about these essential workers. People seemed more aware of the conditions. The problem is they've been deemed essential workers, but they haven't been granted essential protections. Mm -hmm. And so all of the sort of protocols that have been put in place have been to maintain production of agricultural products without protections of workers. Um, all of the things that are put out there have been guidelines not mandatory. From the CDC to Department of Health and Human Services, they're all guidelines. And having worked in this with this uh, workers for so long, we know that guidelines do not work in the agricultural industry. There really has to be some set requirements that um, that require the employees to set up protections. So we're talking about everything from the folks who work in the fields are working side by side. They're living in migrant labor camps, in overcrowded migrant labor camps. They're transported to fields in a school buses. So social distancing is really not possible. There's also the problem of lack of quarantine housing. So when someone, and we're finding a lot of outbreaks in the labor camps, when someone is sick, there's no place for them to quarantine. The housing's overcrowded and there's not an oversupply of migrant housing. With food processing workers, there, is, there are similar issues in terms of workers working shoulder to shoulder, um, workers sharing the same break rooms. And again, as I mentioned, we're hearing from both groups of workers that um, they're not getting paid sick leave. And folks are also really worried about the language and climate around what's happening. Um, and workers are feeling blamed for um, causing the slowdown of production. And so we're hearing workers say that they're afraid to tell their employer if they're sick because the employer is saying this is going to mean the whole, the whole operation has to stop or slow down. So they're feeling this sort of weird burden that they're getting blamed for this problem. And so there's not really a climate of um, openly talking about this, openly encouraging testing um, because of that fear. Um, that people have that they're not only going to lose their own jobs, but cause another worker to lose their job. So there's, there's those issues on the ground. Some other issues are just that um, there's an underreporting of um, cases with it, specifically within farm workers. Part of that is this fear people are afraid, and part of it has to do with the reporting system. The um, health departments are not always asking workers where they work. 
And so if a farm worker gets sick, it's not triggering them to test other workers in that camp. And it's not triggering them to designate workers living in congregate housing um, on the dashboard that the Department of Health and Human Services is tracking. So we're in communication with the governor's office, with DHHS, with all kinds of folks to try to pressure them to require these guidelines. We've got um, our first meeting with the office, the governor's office and DHHS last week after two months of requesting these changes. Um, they've now offered to meet with us weekly to try to make some of these changes because the whole climate has got to switch, right? We've got to have these requirements and we've also got to have a climate that is focused on health and safety of workers. I'll stop there and I can say more later, but Michelle, I know has a lot to add. <laughs> yeah, thanks Melinda. So I work at El Pueblo and we do a lot around advocacy and civic engagement statewide with the Latinx community. So that means we work with both documented and undocumented Latinx folks in the state. Um, and so what that looks like is we talk a lot with representatives, we do a lot of voter education, a lot of voter activation, making sure materials are translated in Spanish so that Latinx voters can actually understand what's going on with the process. Um, we also do a lot of leadership programming for youth and adults so that they can um, become better organizers and um, go out in the community and do their own actions um, around some of the issues that we organize around and also anything that they're passionate about, right? Um, and we also do uh, cultural celebration and expression. So our biggest festival, La Fiesta del Pueblo, is something that we do every year. We've been doing it for the past, I think, 27, 28 years. This year we are doing some form of it, but obviously we're going, we're modifying it for COVID-19. So we're doing, we're gonna be doing some Facebook Live events, a couple of drive-through events during Hispanic Heritage Month. So it's an experiment. So we'll see. We have really tried to, you know, see this as an opportunity to be creative. Um, you know, but um, definitely one of the things that we've been trying to do is really support the community with um, resources, right? Letting them know, hey, this is where you can get tested if you need food, um, mm -hmm. if you need materials, right? Anything like that. Um, that was where we kind of started off during the pandemic. And then we recognized that people needed cash assistance because mm -hmm. a lot of our folks are essential workers, right? And not only that, but they're also workers who depend on other people being employed in order to be employed, if that makes sense. So folks think about like babysitters, folks who do janitorial or nanny services or who go and clean houses, right? Things like that. So it's been definitely a domino effect. Um, and so we've seen, right, like there are some of us that are privileged enough and lucky enough to be able to work from home. And that's not the reality for a big chunk of our community, right? Um, especially since our community has been hit the hardest in North Carolina. Um, in our community, our numbers continue to increase, as we've been seeing. Um, and so that's also been something that we've um, been really conscious about. So one of the things that we ended up deciding to do was creating a mutual aid fund to give cash assistance to families. So, you know, we ask about family size, whether folks were eligible for any kind of government assistance, not just the CARES Act, but also what Melinda was mentioning um, statewide, right, resources. Um, and then also asking them, like, if they wanted to share, like, you know, some of them have shared that they have tested positive for corona or that they support family financially back home, right? And that's also a big responsibility that a lot of families have here is not only supporting themselves here, but also family back in their home countries. Um, so we thought folks know what they need and they'll know how to allocate those resources. So let's just give folks, you know, money, right? Um, and so that's kind of where we've been, what we've been doing for the past two months is doing this cash assistance to folks. So we've been fundraising for that and, you know, just trying to make sure that folks 
have at least some kind of cash flow in order to help them keep them afloat. Um, and we know it's not enough, but we know that at least it's helping some folks and that is really important to us. Um, especially because, you know, unfortunately we live under capitalism and everything costs money, right? And uh, the government is supposedly designed to be a safety net for all of us, right? And now it's been really exposed that it doesn't do that. And it, not just for like vulnerable communities like ours, but for everybody in this country. And I'll just add, like El Pueblo, Student Action with Farmworkers also, um, as many organizations have done, set up an emergency fund. And so we specifically um, have an emergency fund for young people from farmworker families that have an unmet need um, from COVID. We've been able to do one round and we're about to do a second round. And what we heard from folks, um, the number one need was rent and utilities. Um, second was food and third was education supports. And, you know, we were focusing on young people, so that makes sense to us. But that was just, as Michelle said, got to do that. The mm -hmm. other ways that we're trying to address the situation, we have um, 20 frontline bilingual, bicultural students who are on the ground directly supporting farm workers. They are mostly working with health clinics. Some of them are working with schools and some with legal aid. Some of them are doing work virtually, like creating um, videos, educational materials for farm workers, doing teleservices, telehealth. But some of them are already doing on the ground work. So they're visiting farm workers in camps using social distancing, masks, all the protections, but dropping off food, um, dropping off COVID materials, information, dropping off masks and other things that workers need. And so we're, we're seeing workers and seeing what's happening on the ground. And like Michelle, we're also heavily involved with advocacy. We're part of a statewide coalition that focuses on farm worker issues. And when this started in March, our coalition started meeting daily because folks in the coalition are both on the ground and work statewide. And there was a need from those folks that are kind of frontline just to talk to other folks. They were, you know, not knowing what to do, really overwhelmed. And so that space, we now have moved to weekly, but we still are meeting weekly. And we, it's a place for the groups to share what they're seeing, to get resources, support from each other, and also to craft our advocacy strategy. So some, those are some of the ways that we have tried to respond, both adapt our current program, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, our Into the Fields internship program is usually all in person. We go out every night to visit camps. We've had to adjust that. And so keeping up with technology has been incredible. Farm workers um, do not have access to the internet. And so we've been working with the state to try to get hotspots in camps. We've been trying to get computers out to workers, um, to our students, computers and hotspots so they can do the work. So there's been a lot of fast infrastructure um, that we've been trying to create. Yeah, and just to kind of say too, it's been, you know, so inspiring to watch both El Pueblo and Student Action with Farm Workers because y'all are not only doing the work that y'all typically do every single day, but y'all have been experimenting doing these different things that um, and really pivoting to meet the needs of the communities that you serve. And so mm -hmm. I know from here at the foundation, um, you know, I just want to extend my appreciations to you both and the work that y'all are doing. Um, because it's incredible, you know, going through, especially a time where, you know, COVID's impacting nonprofits and nonprofit workers as well. Um, so 
extend my appreciation to you, both of you too, for really leading this work and really supporting people in our community. Thanks. Emily. Yeah. I don't know, Michelle, if y'all have done a direct assistance program before, but we had it. So we were having to learn and set it up and get the money and get the money out there. And there's a lot of logistics and all to figure out, but it felt like we had to do it. I mean, it was just, but it is new to us. It, it definitely is new work. That's exactly what I was going to share too. It's like, we've never been a direct service organization. We've always done advocacy, leadership development mm -hmm. and cultural stuff, right? Like obviously the work has changed with time. Um, or we've done certain work for a really long time. Like with SAF, we've worked a lot on in-state tuition for undocumented mm -hmm. students. Um, so we've been in partnership with them for like 15 years. I mean, this was really new to us because we are like, what is the most, what is the best way to not only get the word out, but also to fundraise, right? To get this money out to people, right? To make sure that um, they're getting the amount of money that they need, right? But also making sure that the funding will go a long way so that we can also help more than just a couple families, right? So it's definitely been also like a really emotional process because folks share, you know, what's going on in their lives and, and how they're worried. And so it's been, I think for the committee that processed through the applications, it's definitely been very emotionally heavy, right? Because of what they have to absorb when they're looking at the applications. But it's also, I think, really gratifying to be able to at least help in some way, shape or form. Um, and I think it just speaks to like how we, all of us as a community want to support each other. We want to help each other, right? Um, and fighting against the idea that white supremacy has us believe that we are not deserving of help or that we shouldn't ask for it. And that these folks are like, no, I need help. So I'm going to ask for it, right? And also encouraging people to do that because that's also really important. I want to echo Ebony's um, just gratitude and it's just incredible to see how much y'all have done and nonprofits have had to pivot in the last handful of months. Um, the Triangle is really lucky to have such incredible organizations working for um, the, 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 what you said, Melinda, essential workers who don't have essential protection, right? And may not even have essentials, food, rent. This is all very, very crucial work. Um, thank, thank you to uh, both of you for, for lifting the curtain on that because it's a lot. Um, so I want to uh, pivot a little bit um, to Bob and Kay, um, who were one of, uh, one of the many fund holders who reached out to the foundation shortly thereafter saying there are communities that are being overlooked um, by the CARES Act. How can we support those communities. Um, so Bob and Kay, I'm curious, so as, as a donor, why do you feel compelled to support this work? What is it that, that speaks to you? And how else do you support this work beyond giving? Well, um, go ahead, Kay. <laughs> um, we, Bob and I have both been involved with a organization called A Giving Circle. I mean, it's a concept that has been replicated a lot over the last dozen years or so. Uh, and we have had the opportunity to come to know many local small nonprofits. And I have just been blown away by how collaboratively these nonprofits have been working during this time of great need. But as a giving circle, we've been able to um, personally get to know the people involved and we go out to the places where they're working. Um, we know that they have their finger on the pulse of the community and we know when we make contributions to the giving circle it's going to have an immediate impact. Um, 
so you know over the last few months we had a special meeting because we were not due to meet to make grant decisions um, when COVID hit but we said no we've got to do something right away so it's helped us appreciate the wonderful work that's being done by nonprofits in the area. Um, I would also say that I have always had a strong affinity towards people um, from Mexico and from South America. I grew up in Southern California and I spent quite a bit of time in Mexico. And my first job when I graduated from college was a Spanish speaking social worker. Um, I saw some of the issues, and this goes way back when I got out of college, <laughs> that immigrants were dealing with then, and that is nothing like what we're having to see today. Um, but today, one of the things that uh, motivates me in, in my continuing work, not just as a donor, but as a volunteer. Is, um, I work with a group you all know well called El Futuro. Um, I'm on the board of El Futuro. And they were involved in this uh, effort to get money and to give it to people who were not, whose needs were not being met and through the, I think it was called the Chatham Solidarity Foundation. Um, I understand that um, they are still issuing checks to families, which is terrific. Um, but nothing like that had ever been done. In the meantime, El Futuro, just in terms of their organizational mission, they've had to pivot because they can't meet with people to provide mental health services on a face-to-face -face basis. So they've been doing it through teletherapy. And fortunately, they've been able to do it quickly. Um, so I'm very pleased that uh, their services are in huge demand and they're able to provide those services. And the other thing I have done over the last few years, I've worked with an organization called the Augustine Literacy Project, and they provide um, tutoring in schools in the area to students who would not be able to afford private tutors and a good percentage of those students are Hispanic. So I've had the opportunity to work with a young girl from pre-K all the way through sixth grade. So it's been really hard since schools are not in, me, in session not to be able to work with her, but I look forward to being able to pick that up again next year. Bob, would you like to chime in at all? Sure. As Kay said, we uh, have long had some uh, considerable affinity for undocumented people because we have spent a lot of time in Mexico and Central America. I've done a lot of research there over the years uh, as an economist. We're familiar uh, with uh, uh, student action with farm workers in El Centro over the years and several other organizations. But when this whole thing hit, we didn't know who was going to meet what we thought was going to be uh, just terrible calamity for these people that are going to be ineligible for virtually all government programs. Uh, and we've worked a lot with Durham Tech, and of course Durham Tech is just closed, so that's not going to happen. So uh, I reached out to uh, Laurel, and uh, she 
very quickly gave me a list of organizations and funds that were, uh, were helping. I also actually contacted Monica Colin at the uh, uh, Council of Mexico in Raleigh, and uh, she sent me a very similar list. Uh, so we have uh, tried to work with these people and also bring this to the attention of the, the giving circle, which contains uh, a number of other people who have an affinity for the undocumented and the, the problems they face. Yeah, I appreciate that both of you have mentioned um, kind of in your background having uh, experience with uh, was it CPA or studying economics and really being able to see, you know, these, these programs that are, are intended to support the country when people are left out, the, the impact of not having that economic opportunity is, is vast. Um, so we appreciate that. Uh, 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 almost one of the first things we had done was uh, through Durham Tech, we found that uh, undocumented students, even if they have DACA status, have to pay out-of-state tuition in North Carolina, unlike a lot of states, which is just a scandal. Yes. So I basically took some money that I was paid for teaching a course at Duke, and uh, for six or seven years now, we have set up a scholarship for uh, uh, undocumented students at, at Durham Tech, and some of the stories they have told us are just, uh, you know, heartwarming and heartbreaking, and um, it, it's an example of uh, how there are people who fall through the cracks. Yeah. Michelle said earlier, um, working on in-state tuition for undocumented students has been one of the projects that El Pueblo and Student Action with Farm Workers have worked on for 15 years together. Um, I remember the first bill we got introduced in the legislature and it has still not passed. And like you said, even in some states, DACA are able to access in-state rates, but not here. And there seems to be a support for this program, but not the will to get it done. So it is a huge issue that affects so many young people um, that, you know, want to contribute to our communities and could be the bilingual nurses and teachers and social workers that we desperately need, um, but are not eligible to continue their education. I, we were so elated, as you know, about the Supreme Court ruling on DACA, and it was one relief in the middle of this very difficult time for so many students that we work with. Yeah, I, I can definitely say that a lot of the young people kind of breathe a sigh of relief. And also we're like, we should definitely celebrate this moment, but there's also a lot of work still to be done, right? Because yeah. it's not a solution, right? DACA was never yeah. a solution. Mm -hmm. um, it excluded a lot of parents, unfortunately, right? Um, and also, you know, it wasn't formalized, right? Mm -hmm. There's no policy to back it up, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that the Trump administration is very intent on making sure that this program mm -hmm. basically dies, right? Yeah. And um, that folks who have benefited from this program, right, are basically left to the side to fend for mm -hmm. themselves, to figure it out somehow. Yep. Um, it does mean that all kinds of private funds and nonprofits are filling the gap. Every student who goes through our leadership programs get a, gets a scholarship when they complete the program. And part of it is because they need scholarships to go continue their education. But folks like yourself, you know, people are, are trying to fill in those gaps when it should be, it's not, a, it's not the systemic solution that we need. Right, exactly. Absolutely. Um, so I guess, you know, 
we, I think it's really important what y'all just brought up too, because I know we're even at the foundation um, kind of filling in that gap as well with uh, of my colleagues that provide scholarships uh, oftentimes to, um, to students that are undocumented or DACA our dreamers um, as well. So I think that's a really important point um, that I really appreciate y'all bringing up as well. So I, I guess, you know, just to wrap this up too, um, you know, I, I do wanna leave room to see if any of you all have any lasting thoughts or, or um, you know, words of wisdom that you, you would like to share um, as well as any, um, and I think I'm stealing your part a little, sorry, uh, but any, uh, you know, we have organizations on here, people that really support organizations that they love. So if you also, you know, in the midst of this want to share, you know, social or how people can find you, um, your website or anything like that. I'd like to make a plea for, uh, or a suggestion that people uh, think about giving circles. Uh, just you can, a young, young people can kick in a few hundred dollars a year and meet quarterly in uh, our uh, policy and our giving circle, which has been going on for about 15 years now. Uh, has 20 people in it, and uh, we always carry the check with us. Uh, we also have a no proposal, no report uh, policy. So there's no, just come and talk with us. If we like you, we give you money, we deliver it, and many of us have went up on the, on the boards of uh, quite a number of the, the grantee organizations. Listen to him. <laughs> it has been challenging. I know that a lot of foundations and other givers have been more um, lenient in terms of applications and how money can be spent, but I still have found myself doing more written applications in the last three months than I ever have. Um, so the burden of doing some of that applications and reporting is a bit much, especially when organizations, foundations have relationships with nonprofits. Like I do think the foundation world has, this is an opportunity I think for foundations also to think about giving in a different way, in a better way, in a way that's more equitable and that allows us to use the money for what you want us to use the money for, not for writing reports, um, but for actually doing the work. And I'll just say, I, I think that the need is so multi-pronged right now. And for us, it always feels like that because we, we do direct services and outreach, but we also do organizing and advocacy. And this is no different. So we've had to you know, do some new direct work, but the direct work has to be there. Farm workers are in need. They need essential um, things, food, clothing, shelter. Um, that is gonna be there. And then the programming has to continue. We don't want to stop doing our leadership development programs. I mean, young people need these paid internships right now to support their families, to learn their new skills, to figure out what they want to do with their lives, to contribute to their families and communities. So we've got to continue our existing programs. And then, as I mentioned earlier, some of the nuanced advocacy has just really it's full right now it's very full um and then some of just the adaptations the technology we were fortunate to get a grant to be able to get hotspots and computers in all of our students hands so that they could actually do teleservices most of our students are from farm worker families themselves mm -hmm. so they didn't have internet they didn't have all that capacity either um so even our 
participants delivering the services needed that support. So I just think it's multi-pronged and that, you know, change doesn't happen only in one way. The pandemic has just shed a light on a lot of systemic issues that are there. And my hopeful, optimistic side is that we can do something new right now that we can take forward. And, you know, I've seen a few interesting collaborations that I haven't seen, particularly with some grower groups for, for our work, as well as with some of the state enforcement agencies, just some interesting conversations that we've never had before. So I am hopeful that we're going to be able to set some things in place that can make some lasting change in, in the work, but also in our relationship with, with donors. Yeah, definitely. I to, to kind of piggyback off what Melinda said about still being in touch with the programs and doing the internships like that's what we've been doing. We had to pivot very quickly right to doing online meetings and things like that. So definitely figuring out the technology and um, also trying to figure out like the dynamics of, of being in video conferences. Right. Like I feel like sometimes it's more demanding on us to be on a video call than in person. Right. Uh, it could be a lot more intense. Um, but I think people still really appreciate the fact that we're able to meet and to get together. I think what our leaders have really been most anxious about is like, I want to be out in the community doing actions and changing things, right? Especially with all the like um, Black Lives Matter protesting happening, right? And wanting to change all these systemic things that are happening. Um, there's really this like, this is the time, right? To be doing things and getting involved. And also it's like, we all have different roles, right? Some of us are on the ground and are at those protests, right? And some of us are doing that, the backend work, right? Where, where nobody knows that we're doing all this stuff, but it's, it's pushing some of the, the uh, work forward as well. So that's also been something that we've been trying to manage is like that energy, right? And that drives where, like I said, it was an opportunity to be creative and, and think about ways that we can all do things and be involved while having to socially distance and stay home, right? Um, so that's been something that we've been figuring out, navigating, like I mentioned earlier with Fiesta, we were really trying to figure out like, we don't wanna cancel it, right? It's a really, really big event. It's been around for a long time and folks really look forward to it every year. So it was like, how can we change it up and be different, right? Um, and like with the mutual aid fund, it's been an interesting process for us because um, we have never done like this kind of work before and it's definitely been a learning process but i mean we have been able to help over i think almost 400 families and give out almost i think over a hundred thousand dollars to families all over north carolina mm -hmm. um and so unfortunately we get people who who apply from out of state and it sucks because we can't help them right because we're focusing on north carolina um, but then what do we try to do? We try to look for other resources, maybe where they live or things that they can tap into, like, you know, cause there, there are a lot of resources out there, but it, there's no one place to find them. So that's also part of the issue, right? Is that folks are overwhelmed, um, don't know how to find those things, the language barrier for one, too. And also just like, you know, the tech illiteracy too, like a lot of folks are not very comfortable with technology. So it's like, you know, doing a Google search is, you know, everybody thinks it's, you know, a thing that everybody should know, but that's not true, right? Um, and also just the lack of access to technology like a laptop, right? Most folks have cell phones that they use, but they don't have a laptop or a computer at home. Um, so just navigating all those things has been an interesting process, but, you know, I think we've definitely beefed up on skills we didn't have before. We're much more creative, and I think we're also a lot more flexible now than we used to be in order to respond to the current moment, right? Mm -hmm. 
I was just going to add, you know, SAF and El Pueblo are two pretty established organizations. We've been around a while. We're considered stable organizations, right? It doesn't mean we have everything figured out. We have to fundraise every year. But um, one of my concerns is some of the grassroots organizations. And, you know, y'all both mentioned there's other groups in the triangle and beyond that are that are really struggling right now. So I hope people will also think about other groups and some of the small grassroots groups who are really, um, the pandemic is going to affect them as an organization as well. You know, I mean, it's definitely affecting our groups, but in a different way. And so I, I also hope the foundation can think about that. And like, I know the foundation is committed to building the infrastructure of nonprofits. And I think a healthy nonprofit infrastructure has a diversity of organizations in terms of size and focus and mission and geographic focus. Um, but I do worry about some of those small groups. And I, I hope as people are looking for ways to give that they can consider consider um, some of those grassroots groups as well. I've learned so much from this conversation. Um, uh, essential workers don't have essential protection. There are so many ways to get involved. You can be out in the streets. You can, you can give now. You can give often. You can give without restriction. I really like that, Bob. Thank you. Um, you there's, there's so many opportunities for folks to get involved, and, um, and I really appreciate all of you sharing the different ways in which you've been involved and continue to be and are working to um, to make our community a better place and to support everyone in it, right? Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ebony, I don't know if you have anything else to say, but I'm, I'm just feeling a lot of appreciation for um, each of the roles that um, you all have played in this so far. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Laurel. Thank so you. folks Thank you. Are, are interested in supporting the mutual aid fund. We're still taking applications and giving out funds. You can just go to elpueblo.org. Um, we had to pause the application process because we had to look at the funds, but thankfully we were able to reopen the application process. So we're still taking applications. Awesome. Yeah, thank y'all for raising awareness of the folks that are left behind in all of um, the stimulus supports. And it's really important that um, those of us um, who are informed stay informed and go deeper and find ways to really support these community members. So thanks for allowing this. And um, Kay and Bob, for your support of this community. It's so uh, nice to hear directly from you all. Thank you.